Welcome to Regold's Dance Life Podcast for dance teachers and dance studio owners who have a passion for the art of dance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Regold's Dance Life Podcast. Today's episode features a conversation that Re had with Ronnie Marla. Ronnie is a former ballerina who has performed principal roles with the American Ballet Theatre and the National Ballet of Washington. She's now an absolute firecracker of a teacher. Her classes are energetic, she's enthusiastic, and she has so much incredible knowledge to share. I know you're going to love this conversation that she has with Ree and get so much out of it. Get your notebook out and get ready. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. We are at the Retreat Center in Norton, Massachusetts, and Ronnie is doing a ballet intensive for us. I wanted to take this opportunity to hang out with her and talk about her passion for dance. She's one of the greatest. I consider her a legend and I consider her a true master in passing on to teachers what it is to make strong dancers. Uh, Ronnie, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I uh, love being here. And I'm remembering every time I come that I was the first kind of guinea pig when you started this dream of yours. You did a summer of yourself, and then you asked me if I wanted to come and try to be, to see if this would work, if we could attract enough people. And Hurricane Sandy happened on the Monday... And this was starting on Saturday and Sunday of the same week. And we had people. We had somebody from Houston. I don't even know how she got there. But anyway, uh, it's... I forgot about that. Yes, yes. And it's such an, a unique experience. We've come a long way, baby. We've come a long way, baby. So I know you have all of this energy inside of you. Uh, my first question, describe your passion for teaching and dance. I think I'm passionate about teaching because every time I walk into a new situation, I see unmolded clay. I see dancers or students that have a certain amount of knowledge a varying amount of expertise, but they're there because they want to get a little bit better. And I'm going to be able to do some sculpting and some introducing and some new ways to think about things. I'm going to be able to inspire them to use their imaginations to correct themselves. Everybody's got an imagination. And it works. That's awesome. So, Ronnie, I know that uh, dance has been in your life forever. What and how did you walk into that first dance class? Uh, my mother took my six-year-old sister and I, I was four at the time, to a matinee performance, a Sunday matinee of American Ballet Theater in New York. It was called Ballet Theater in those days. It hadn't gone bankrupt and reinvented itself. I want to ask you a question. Why do you think your mom chose to introduce you to ballet. My mother wanted to be a dancer. Okay. My, you know this, this gift I have, mm -hmm. which I like to pass on, because it's just a gift. I didn't invent it. She outdoes me. It's from her. Okay. I got 
I didn't get her feet. I got my father's feet, but that's all right. Uh, <laughs> she wanted to dance, and she was born in 1916, and her father said, no daughter of mine is going to be upon the wicked stage, so she couldn't. But she always danced in camp, in summer camp, and she had a teacher there who taught Isadora Duncan technique. And the teacher was named Lillian Rosenberg, and Lillian Rosenberg was an original is adorable. She was an original Isadora Duncan dancer. Really? Yes. So when I was five years old, instead of putting me in ballet, my mother called up Lydia and said, do you have room for her? And she said, I have a Saturday class I think she'd like. And I remember bare feet, little white underpants, and a red chiffon scarf. Okay. And it went underneath my right armpit. And over here, it went in a safety pin on top. And Miss Rosenberg, or Miss Lydia, told us to get into a circle, and she said, be butterflies. And I can remember, butterfly, butterfly, butter and going around and around, feeling like a butterfly and smiling with an uplifted chin and feeling totally free, totally free. How old were you? Five. And you felt it right away. Oh, yeah. And I said, I, I say to myself now how fortunate that I learned the joy of movement before I ever met a first position. The next year, my mother enrolled me in ballet class. And it was an arduous task because I must have taken a class with every ballet teacher in the city. And I was a very good mimic. So if the teacher held her hands like this, I held my hands like this. And my mother would pull me out of that school. And, you know, she could tell because... She could tell. My she mother had an eye because she had the gift herself. When she was little, when she was like 12 or 13, she had a, a 25 cents was her allowance. And she found this woman in the Bronx that she could walk to. She doesn't remember her name. That woman, for a quarter, gave her a 30-minute class once a week. And she says, the woman told me the movement starts here and doesn't end till it ends at your fingertips. Now, who was this lady, right? So my mother had the gift, and she could see it. And she could see when it wasn't there, and she could see that I was imitating, and she didn't know if I really was going to want to be a dancer, but she said, just in case, I don't want her to have to unlearn stuff. So she made an appointment with Anatole Chujoy, who was the editor of Dance News. That's my mother, okay? And he, he agreed to see her. And she walked in the office and she said, I have what I'm told is a very talented six-year-old. <laughs> and they're going, and, Yeah, they, uh, they all have moms like that oh too, you know. Oh, my God. And she said, I just, I've, I've tried everything and I just want to have good training. Can you give me a recommendation? He said, I'm not allowed to in my position, but I can tell you a fact. Madame Swoboda is considered the best children's teacher in this part of the country. And so she called up. She sent us all to lunch at Shrafts, which was on the corner of 57th and uh, 6th. And um, she went upstairs and she walked in, and Violet was the receptionist. And the story goes that my mother said, I would like to enroll my 
daughters in ballet, but I would like to observe Madame Sorbonne teaching first. And so she went into the waiting room, and apparently Madame Sorbonne walked in, and Violet said something or something along the lines of, "We've got a live one here," you know. My mother sat and watched Madame Sorbonne move and almost wept. Madame Sorbonne had the gift. She was amazing, and my mother enrolled us yesterday. And Madame Soboda spoke with a piercing voice and a heavy Russian accent. I couldn't understand a thing, but my mother's father had emigrated from Russia as a nine-year-old and always spoke with a heavy Russian accent. You know, he peddled fruit on the east side, and then he got a horse, and then, okay, that's the story, right? Wow. And she was able to come home and and um, translate for me. And I remember Potable befuddled me. I couldn't get Potable And I remember coming home and she put me at her chest of drawers in her bedroom. And I must have been very short because I remember my hands up above. And she made me do step back, step side, close front. Step back, she didn't care about fifth, step side, cross front, step back, you know, over and over again with my hands up here. And by the time I went back to class, I knew Potterbury. So mom translated for me for quite a while. And um, uh, Madame Sabota threatened to throw her out because she would sit over there during class and, and she, she, she'd go like this. I'd be dancing, she'd go. She wanted me to stand up straighter or move my head or something and, you know, eyes. And, and you'd hear, Ethel, I throw you out. <laughs> Her name was Ethel. Ethel, I throw you out. <laughs> and then my mother would shut up for a while. She never made a noise, but she had to sit still. It's right. almost impossible. So for those viewers who have this mother, know that maybe Ronnie, a Ronnie Mahler will come out of it and you'll have a little more patience. Yes, you never know. I can remember when I was 14, <laughs> the mothers of my friends would say to me, you're still taking ballet? How interesting. They couldn't figure it out. Why was I still taking ballet? Everybody else had quit. Why were you still taking it? It was my oxygen. I couldn't breathe without it. You know, I think if I were Catholic, maybe that's how nuns feel. I don't know. But I know that I, it's my oxygen. And I am happiest in class or on stage, moving to music. And on stage, you get the communication thing with the audience, I call it disturbing molecules. How many molecules can I disturb so that they go and they hit somebody and they go, whoa, you know what I mean? But you can transport people out of their troubles. I agree 100%. And take them someplace that you are in because you're having such a good time moving to music. And, you know, music is in me because of the Mahler thing, so music okay, is Okay, now everything. you have to tell them the Mahler thing. A <sighs> quick Mahler thing. Quick. Yeah. Okay, Gustav Mahler, great composer, great conductor, um, born in Transylvania, studied in Vienna, um, died in 1911, 
at the age of 51, I think, so you do the math. And um, he, Gustav Mahler and my great-grandfather were first cousins because their fathers, David and Bernard, were brothers. So that made my great-grandfather, Rudolf, a first cousin of Gustav. His son, Wilhelm, my grandfather, a first cousin once removed, Wilhelm's son, Paul, my dad, a first cousin twice removed, and the three Mahler girls, closest living relatives, first cousins three times removed. We found somebody out in L.A. who thought he was the closest, but he was a second cousin. Second cousins are the children of first cousins. I'm an expert. Anyway, come by it naturally. Come by it naturally. They say all the Maulers are crazy. Watch out. So, <laughs> we got to about uh, age 14. Mm-hmm. Did you stay training? Where was your next step after? Mm. Madame. <clears throat> the great thing was, well, not great. I came to Madame in October of 1948. Her husband passed away two months before in August of 48. So she mm-hmm. was running the school by herself, and she tried a succession of male teachers because... She taught children's class variations in point. The male teacher taught professional class, men's class, and pas de deux. Okay? Yes. She kept trying people, and they kept leaving her, and trying people, and they kept leaving her. And so finally, she sold the school to Sergei J. Denham, director of the Ballet Russe de Monte Carlo, in 19... <clears throat> pardon me, 54, when I was 12. And um, he wanted a school in New York. He had no school for the company. And so it still stayed her school, but I got this influx. Freddie Franklin, Leon Danielian, Mia Slavenska, it went on and on. Casimir Kokic for character. Um, it, it just never stopped. It was so rich an education, and I got a full scholarship when I was 14. And they asked me to join the company because they have this history of baby ballerinas, you know. Baranova, Tamanova, and Rhea Bashinska went when they were 13. And Madame Soboda said to, to Nina Novak, who was the uh, prima ballerina of the company, uh, she said, we are very flattered, but we are going to finish high school. And with that Cheshire cat grin. And so right out of high school, I didn't go to the audition because I wanted a year to study without being exhausted. I loved my academics, so I was burning that candle at both ends. Four hours sleep a night so that I could... My father said, if you don't continue your A average, no dancing. So, you know, but you need your eight hours of sleep a night. Those two things are not compatible. So anyway, I managed to get... I was salutatorian of the class, but I wasn't going to college, and it was a scandal. They almost didn't let me speak. I wasn't going to college because they didn't allow part-time students in those days. I had a scholarship to Sarah Lawrence, and all I wanted to do was take the train from New Rochelle to Bronxville, study from 9 till 12 at the college, take the train and be in first position by 2 o'clock in New York. And she said, we'd love to have you, Ronnie, but Sarah Lawrence doesn't take part-time students, 1959. She said, why don't, to my parents, why don't you give her her head, they were sitting right there, in ballet for two years, and if it doesn't work out, we'll honor the scholarship. So my father, yeah, my father wrote an invisible two-year clause into my contract. 
young lady, at least a demi-soloist role in the first two years, otherwise you go back to college. Big swans, four months into the first tour, no problem. Enough injuries, Ronnie, yes, go. They flew to Cleveland to see it. <laughs> they flew to Cleveland to see... See me do my little demi-soloist role. They surprised me. I didn't know they were there. And never a question again regarding academic education? Oh, he, he, my father was so disappointed. I was supposed to be an atomic physicist. Oh, good. <laughs> and, um, and I turned down calculus in my senior year because I didn't want the four hours of homework. I was busy. He said I was wasting my mind, but he got over it. And um, he said, but if you're going to do this, you better be good. So no pressure there. No, but you did turn out really good. I was lucky. I had good teachers and good people to work with and great choreographers to work with. Right place, right time. Bruce um, Marks listed the people that he has worked with and only Doris Humphrey and one other person. I couldn't match that list. Really? Yeah. Uh, lucky, 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 lucky. Um, uh, oh, Lucas Hoving. That was the other one. Okay? But, I mean, you get to work with Anthony Tudor, Agnes DeMille. Oh, Martha Graham I didn't work with. But I worked with Balanchine. But he worked yes, with Yes, yes. You know, um, it goes on and on How and on. lucky. Oh, how lucky. Absolutely. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. He, he say, um, not show me that step. Show me how the limbs do that step. He was, he was coaching us in the four temperaments. And when he got to the melancholic gentleman, he said, I don't want to see you melancholic because you lost your dog or your car or your wife. <laughs> I want to see your limbs look melancholic. It was fascinating. Fascinating. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You so you went on, you were performing, you were soloist. So I, I was I was corps de ballet with Ballet Rooster Monte Carlo for two years, and then they folded. And I had already signed with Uncle Fred, Frederick Franklin, who had given me my audition to win the scholarship. And I had already, um, so a real mentor, died at 98. I took class from Frederick Franklin, I can say. <clears throat> wow. And, um, and then, but everybody in New York knew that um, the, um, the company was closing. So they were all there to find dancers, including Bob Joffrey. So on the Monday after we close, I get a call from Edith Daddario, the mm. storied head of the school, saying, Ronnie, Mr. Joffrey saw you perform this weekend at the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and he would very much like you to join the tour to India, because Rebecca Harkness was already involved, and they were going to India that, that time. It was 62. And um, so would you please come and take 5 o'clock company class tomorrow, uh, tonight? She called me Monday morning, and I had to say to her, Mrs. Daddario, please thank Mr. Joffrey so much, but I'm already signed with Frederick Franklin for the National Ballet of Washington. Talk about divergent roads. 
I believe, I believe I, I, it was, I believe I could have had a fine career, but I, I somehow, my connection with Mr. Franklin was amazing. And um, he was my first Dr. Capalius when I did Swan Elda. Um, and um, he could will you to dance. He could just will it. He was so organic when he coached and so uplifting and so knowledgeable. And he did Friar Lawrence on stage at the Met with ABT at 97 years old. And I remember the ballet mistress saying to me, you know, we were all very worried because in the dress rehearsal, he couldn't remember his staging. He couldn't remember where he was supposed to be, everything like that. Curtain goes up, costume, makeup, scenery. On it. On it. Unbelievable. A child of the theater till the end. And what an opportunity for him to do it one last oh, time. Oh, my God. Amazing. And he, he had that uh, disturb the molecules thing. You know, mm. he had that disturb the molecules. I think I got that from him. Actually, I stole it. But he had enough to give away. <laughs> Let's break it up a little. Tell me one, uh, one performance, one time you were on stage that was one of the funniest things that ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Oh, God. Closing night, Covent Garden. ABT is performing, and um, we're closing with etudes. <laughs> and I lose my contact lens. And I'm a white girl. And the, 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 if you've seen etudes, it's crossing and this and that and back and front and this and polonaise and brush and this and that. Ivan Naj is in stage left, and he has found, he can see my contact lens on the ground. And he's trying to tell me while I'm trying to dance and not pay attention to him that he knows where it is. And all of a sudden, one girl goes dum da and brushes it. And now he's running from that wing to this wing. And I'm trying not to notice. And he's going, oh, I see it again. I see it again. And finally, at the very end, when I walked forward to bow, I stepped on it. <laughs> so you had no contact lens. No. Isn't that great? It's a great story. Great story. And it happened. It happened. That's great. Oh, my God. Thanks for sharing. Oh, my God. (laughs) So now you're uh, doing a lot of teaching of teachers. Yes. First, uh, what does that mean to you? Or the opportunity to do that? I always like to say, Wisdom is the gift we get from our mistakes. The older you are, the more mistakes you've made. That's why I'm so wise. I have made every mistake in the book, okay? And teaching mistakes. So I love being able to impart what I've learned, what I used to do, what I consider incorrectly, and how I fixed it. One of the things... One of the first things I say to teachers is, there's a little pact between you and the student. 
The student says to you, if I want to do it correctly, I have to be willing to do it wrong for a while. And you say back to the student, oh God, this is the hard part. If I want to see it correctly, I have to be willing to look at it wrong for a while. Oh my God, that's the tough one. So we tend to want to cue our students constantly to prevent them from being wrong when in fact we're robbing them of their independence and of the chance for the brain message syndrome to kick in. We're not doing them any favors. You have to be willing to look at it wrong for a while. Madame Swoboda taught me that. (laughs) She came to Kansas State while I was there as an assistant professor And I initiated and ran a dance degree program for six years. I left Manhattan, New York, and went to Manhattan, Kansas. Very funny. And um, so my son, Eric, was between ages 6 and 12. Very nice. And um, she came to town for a 10-day workshop. I had teachers come in on the weekend in between. And during the two weeks surrounding it, she taught the intermediate and advanced classes and watched me teach my ballet one and ballet two classes. The first time she watched me teach a ballet one class, she said, Didi, shut up. You talk too much. You tell them what to do every minute. I was cueing them because I wanted them to be correct. They weren't learning. I learned to be quiet. The second thing she taught me, without saying it, but just by observing her, is let them be wrong. Don't jump right in. If they're wrong the fifth time, jump in. But here's what I have learned since. The first time somebody tries to do something, let's say it's a petite allegro, okay? They are on the wrong foot, and they don't know why. They don't know what went wrong. I have no idea. The second time they do it wrong, they say, oh, my God, that's what I'm doing wrong, okay? The third time they watch themselves do it wrong again and still don't correct it. And the fourth time, sometimes it kicks in. So if you go in sooner than that, you disrupt that learning cycle. And it's not... Very, very good. Very good. So what she would do, Madame Savota and I teach it this way all the time, because the thing that I hate most, that I hated most when I was a professional, if the class was large and there were four groups, you do the adagio, you wait around for three groups to do the adagio before you can dance again. You're cold. And if it's a if it's a crowded class, they say, please don't work in the back, okay? Madame Sabota turned her class away from the mirror and moved it the long way across. She put people who knew it in the front. All the steps had a traveling component. It was more important to stay in a straight line than to do the step correctly because you'll eventually get the step. But being able to travel and stay in a formation is valuable, n'est-ce pas? I think so. So when the people who knew it got to the end and filtered around to start again, the people who sort of knew it, and now you've got a bunch of people who don't know it at all and they're copying 
and suddenly those people have gone away and there's no help for them. She kept quiet. She let them kind of figure it out by committee. You know, one person remembered this step, one person remembered this step. She didn't even care if they went beyond the music. She just let them alone. And then when it was their time, they did better the second time, and by the third time they had it. And the people, once they get to the back, start again. You have to match the leg they're on so the teacher doesn't go cross-eyed. But you can run a step four or five times. Nobody's waiting to dance. Nobody's getting cold. Everybody's busy and everybody's improving. And after I run a step seven times, which I do, I run it till the music runs out. And because I was using my records, they had big bands because I knew I wanted rec music that never stopped. And so um, I say, how many people got better as you went along? Everybody's hand goes up. It's amazing. You teach yourself. You teach yourself, and the teacher can't get in the way of that. The teacher can't get in the way. Then you start to teach an adult, okay? You've got a, something that moves across the room. Something that moves across the room. Let's oh, a say, step. I got yeah, it. I got it. Let's say, yeah, a something. Okay. Let's say Tombe Padabare. All right. And you've got all these adult teachers that are trying it, and you've got one adult standing in the corner there, and she's not trying it. And I say, would you like to try? And she says, I'm going to watch it a few more times. Oh, dear, darling. Yes, if you do that, your brain will get smarter, but your body won't learn a thing. Why don't you start here and do it wrong from this end to that end, and I'll be able to figure out your most consistent error, and then you'll, I'll be able to give you some help. You don't have to be right. You just have to be not afraid to try. And it's hard, because somehow we all think we need to be right. I don't know where we got that from. I agree. Yeah. Wow, good, good, good yeah. teaching wisdom there. Teaching wisdom. So I want to ask you this question. What do you think of dance in this 21st century? Oh, that's a good one. I have too many of my uh, contemporaries saying, oh, classical ballet is dead. Nobody wants to see that anymore. Not so. Taint so, McGee. It's not being taught right. It's not being danced right. They forget the organic nature of it. They've allowed the athletic nature of it to take over. Much like figure skating. Huh? Um, you know what I'm talking about, this, right? Yes. So Even in the professional world. Even in... Oh, yes. Yes, yes. And there's a, um, an infatuation with a leg that goes up here. In a tutu. Do you know how ugly that is in a tutu? I watched a succession of dancers at a competition where they all have to perform the same thing. Okay? Yes. And the thing was Black Swan Potter. And when they got to the end, I'm going to show it on the wrong side. You're supposed to give the prince your, this hand, and your développé is on this side, and then you turn to the attitude penché to end. It's the very end of the, of the adagio before his variation. And I watched it, but I'm going to show it on this side because okay. otherwise I'll hit your nose. So um, <laughs> they go like this, they go like this, and they Dave LaPay so high that they had to do this with their elbow to allow for the leg to come up. It's not because even that ballet. leg was more important. The height of the leg was more important. And that's not ballet. 
I mean, 1157 is not ballet. 1054 is the highest it should go. It's enough already. And what's happened is the lines between acrobatics and ballet have been blurred by, bless their hearts, the Chinese, who have a woman promenading on point on top of a man's head calling it Swan Lake. You know, it's lovely, it's amazing, it's not ballet. They're in tutus and it's Tchaikovsky's music, but it's not ballet. And putting the organic nature back into it so that we're not just not moving the head and absolutely staying stiff. And I believe that you train that from age six and because that's the way I was trained. When I tomed you front, my head goes there. I can't do it without that because I don't think I had it perfected at six, but that's what I was shown. And so I build in to my plies now an exercise where they tomed you side, demi-plie, the head goes down a little bit, releve, and when you plie, the arm doesn't flop open, it stays, so that the tomed you and the head and the arm go together. Madame would call it coordination, deity, coordination. She couldn't say coordination, okay? And then when you demi-plie in second, the head follows the hand, okay? You don't look at the hand because then the whites of your eyes are showing, you look across the street. But you build it in early. They don't do it well at six or seven, but by eight or nine, they've got it, and it's not new news. You can build in the organic, visceral, beautiful... Bruce Marx calls it the breath. It, you can build it in young. And some people disagree with me, and they have tried and true methods that don't do that. They concentrate on legs only. And I admire it, but I don't teach it because I know what works for me. And I think that's important. We all come from different vantage points toward the same end. So you as the teacher decide who speaks to you. And then you go and take from a whole bunch of teachers and figure out, get rid of the chafe until you find the kernel that can work for you. And you take that kernel because each of you has a different situation. Just as everybody's different and every body is different. So you teach the body, not the manual. Gotcha. Yeah. So, uh, where do you see yourself five, ten years from now? What, <laughs> well, where's your passion leading you right now? Teaching. I'm going to teach forever. Now, on the day that I turned 60, and I'm 74, on the day that I turned 60, I woke up, looked at the four walls in my bedroom, and said, I am going to live another 30 years. I'm now up to 104. See, it grows, whatever birthday it is, okay? So, no, no problem. I'm, I'm figuring out how to do it age appropriately. It's not easy. Usually you keep injuring yourself until you finally say, you know, this is not working. And then you don't do that anymore. You find somebody else who can demonstrate it for you. If you're trying to teach beats, it's better to push yourself up on a bar and do it in slow motion so they can see it rather than hobble around and do it badly and have swollen ankles the next day. You know what I mean? It just, 
it, it's, it's, it's an adventure. And I'm glad I'm on it. Elaine Stritch, I'm still here. Ask me in 10 years. I'm right. still here. I will. We will do this every 10 years. There you for go. For the next 100, all right? <laughs> awesome. Thank you, Ronnie Miles. Fabulous. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Regold Dance Life podcast. Thank you so much for all the overwhelming sharing of love and support for this endeavour. I know Ree really appreciates it. We'd love you to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. That will help us share the podcast with as many people as we can all around the world. And until next time, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for joining us for Regold's Dance Life podcast. Learn more about joining the International Dance Entrepreneurs Association, the Dance Life Teacher Conference, and the Dance Life Retreat Center at regold.com or follow Regold's Dance Life on Facebook. Enjoy the journey. You've been listening to another Morgan Media production. 